Well, thank you, Peter, I think. Um, so how do you follow a monkey and a parrot? Oh, I know, Sodom and Gomorrah. I hope you have a Bible open in front of you. Uh, it's Genesis chapter 19, verse one, uh, what, verses 1 to 29, um, uh, verse, uh, page 19 in the church Bible. Um, first things first. Uh, how many people have seen the film Titanic? Or, most people, or any other disaster movie? <laughs> yeah, thought so. Okay. Um, now, when you sat down and watched the opening uh, titles for Titanic or one of these other disaster movies, did you know what was going to happen? Well, of course you did. <laughs> you knew that the, the ship was going to sink. You knew that the plane was going to crash. You knew that the tunnel was going to collapse. What perhaps you didn't know within the, uh, the, the plot, however uh, realistic or semi-fictionalised uh, it might have been, uh, perhaps who was going to be saved out of that disaster. Usually something happens um, uh, by way of uh, deliverance of, of, of some people. He probably didn't know that within the plot of the movie. And that's pretty much what we have in, uh, in this section of Genesis. We already know from Genesis chapter 13, six chapters earlier, that Sodom was an exceedingly wicked place, as were the, and that it was destined for destruction. We know that already. The question then is, how will that happen, and will anybody get saved from that destruction? So we have a twofold story. We have two parallel plots, if you like, going on here. We have the destruction of Sodom and the surrounding cities of the plain um, uh, near, the, uh, near the Dead Sea. And uh, about the destruction of Sodom, I'm not going to say very much this morning. I'm not going to duck out of it entirely. I will be speaking about it later on, but I just think that this is just too, too far ahead of the nine o'clock watershed <laughs> to be going into that in any detail with you, except to say, except to acknowledge that many of us would rather the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was not in the Bible. We would rather stick with the light and life and truth and joy that comes with Jesus. We'd rather this story and one or two others like it weren't in the Bible at all. Or if they were in the Bible, they weren't associated with God in the way that this story is, because the destruction is associated with the will of God, the punishment of God on an exceedingly wicked city. The trouble with that feeling, with that thought, um, let's ignore it, it didn't really happen, let's pretend it's not really in the Bible. The trouble with that is the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, witnesses to the dreadful reality of the destruction of Sodom. Not least the Lord Jesus himself. Read, for example, Matthew chapter 11, and what he says about Sodom, and comparing it 
favourably, as it happens, with uh, some of the cities of his own time, Capernaum in particular. So we can't avoid it, and in attempting to uh, believing, as I do, that all scripture is inspired by, is God-breathed, and that we want to follow Paul in declaring the whole counsel of God, um, we cannot ignore it. We have to face up to it, I think, and deal with it. But I say that bit will come later, because there's a second story going on here, which is the story not only of ruin, but of rescue, not only of destruction, but of deliverance. And this is the deliverance, the rescue of Lot and one or two members of his family, and that's what I want to focus on for our time together this morning. I want to ask this question. Taking Lot and his rescue from the disaster that fell on Sodom, was there ever a less likely candidate for rescue than Lot? Let me tell you what I mean. Unlikely, Lot, that God would choose to rescue him? Let's look at this a little bit at Lot. Lot made a decision. He was the nephew uh, of Abraham, and uh, their, their families and their flocks had grown so large that they couldn't occupy the same bit of land together. So Lot chose to uh, camp uh, in the land that was adjacent to the city of Sodom. And then a little later, the next chapter, chapter 14, we find Lot actually living in Sodom. He has gone deliberately to a place that's already notorious for its wickedness. Wise move, do you think? Leaving himself open to temptation, do you think? Well, I would think so. Uh, Martin Luther had a, a pithy saying when he said, um, you, can stop, you can't stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. Now, so, now Lot was simply asking for the birds of Sodom to take nest in his hair by living there. Not a good move. Secondly, I heard a few shudders or, or, or embarrassed <laughs> giggles when this bit was mentioned uh, by, uh, by Peter in, in our reading. The story, as if you were following it, was that um, Lot, who's living in Sodom, is visited by these two men who turn out to be angels. And um, there is a clamor on the door as the men, all the men, collectively a mob of men, hammer on the front door of the house and say, let us in, we want to have sex with your two visitors. Lot, being the impeccable host, says, no, please don't do that. And being the dubious father, says, here are my two daughters instead. They're virgins, making them extra desirable. Take them rather than the two two men. I can feel the narrator and his readers shuddering (laughs) at that offer. As we, would, uh, 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 as we would shudder too. Please don't make the mistake that the Bible approves of everything that it records. Not a good move. Further, 
slightly less obviously, Lot was, seemed unable, was, was unable to influence his sons-in-law. The two angels say to him, look, you can be rescued and also any other members of your family. So Lot has two sons-in-law, no doubt residents of Sodom itself, um, who are sons-in-law in the sense that they are betrothed in marriage to Lot's two daughters. Lot speaks to them and says, come with me and be rescued. And don't let this God-sent uh, disaster fall on you. And the text says, they thought he was joking. Now that seems to me to reflect both on their character, but possibly on his too. That he wasn't a man that they could take, they felt they could take seriously. I wonder if that makes some of us who are parents or indeed grandparents feel a little uneasy. Are we the kinds of people that our children, our grandchildren, our daughters and sons-in-law would take seriously if we were to warn them? Just a passing thought. Then we read in verse 16 that he hesitated. Now, it sounds like a fairly minor thing, but in the context of a looming disaster, to hesitate shows weakness of character and shows an attraction to everything that Sodom was about. That means he still didn't believe and still was attracted to that old way of life. He hesitated when he should have hurried. He has a long conversation with the angels. In the end, they have to drag him, (laughs) virtually kicking and screaming. And, of course, his wife hesitated that much more. And we know what happened to Lot's wife. Again, Jesus says, don't forget Lot's wife. Remember her. And so, all in all, Lot, unlike Abraham, has left little positive mark on history. Thereafter in the Bible, he's not really mentioned uh, very much at all, uh, apart from his descendants. And by the way, in this further section, this later section of chapter 19, we still haven't done with the horror of this story. Lot's two daughters, who have been rescued along with him, assume that they're the only people left because everything else else has been uh, been devastated. So they're thinking, how can we have offspring? Well, let's get our dad drunk and have sex with him. But even so, there is a note of grace creeping in. Would you just look with me at what it says at the end of chapter 19? Both Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. Over long periods of history, the Moabites and Israelites were at loggerheads with one another. They they fought one another. But do we know, do you know, of a Moabite, or rather a Moabitess, who found God, who found grace, And if that finds herself mentioned in the very first sentences of the New Testament of Matthew's Gospel as one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see some heads nodding because we've done Ruth (laughs) and Naomi uh, not very long ago, earlier this year. And no doubt grace is creeping in even 
after that. But all in all, a pretty unlikely candidate for rescue. But we can see these two things in Lot. Firstly, and perhaps surprisingly, the New Testament, second, Peter, uh, second letter of Peter in chapter 2, actually calls him righteous, even though he had many character flaws and defects and weaknesses. He's called righteous by Peter. Righteous, I suppose, in the sense that even though living in Sodom, he managed to resist its worst uh, outrages. And secondly, he did his little best to protect his visitors, even though he offered his daughters in their place, which is not a nice thing to do. Righteous in perhaps those two ways. But also the text itself, verse 19, Lot himself declares to God's messengers, these two angels, that he's found favour and kindness. That he doesn't regard himself as being rescued on merit. I'm a good guy. I deserve being rescued. He finds in the heat of that moment that he's found favour and kindness. Now, I've been thinking, what does the Bible more generally have to say about imperfect saints? Because Lot was very much that, wasn't he? A deeply imperfect saint. And I find myself jumping from the first book of the Bible to the last, to the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is viewed as dictating letters to seven churches, seven Christian congregations. Of these seven churches, the Lord Jesus, there's only one, Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, where Jesus has nothing but praise, and only one, Laodicea, where Jesus has nothing but criticism. All the others are, to a lesser or greater extent, mixed bags, full of flawed saints. Isn't that you and I? Isn't that every Christian congregation? Are we not a collection of flawed saints, more or less? So what does Jesus say to these flawed saints? Does he say, that's okay, I've, you're Christians, you're believers, you're my followers, I've given you a first-class ticket to heaven, off you go, you're safe. He doesn't say that at all. He says things like this to them. He says, remember, repent, hold on, wake up, strengthen what remains, be earnest. Which of those or similar <laughs> things is Jesus urging of us and of you and of me. We're all like Lot. We're all flawed saints. This is a flawed church. What is Jesus saying to us? To steal us to action. To make us more like him. For us to grow and love and joy and peace. Some of the Lord's comments about these, uh, so, uh, about these uh, churches are to do with their teaching, their, their doctrine. 
And other things he says are to do with their behavior, their deeds. Where does that leave us? Uh, a Christian teacher and writer called Mark Dever uh, reaches back to some words of John Newton. Yes, that John Newton the, of Amazing Grace. And he says this, The truly changed, truly converted, truly Christian heart can say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. We are all indeed a work in progress in that regard. But this is supposed to be a series about uh, about Abraham and walking by faith. What had Abraham been up to? (laughs) Abraham had been praying. He'd been praying not specifically for God to be merciful to Lot. He'd been praying in chapter 18 for God to be himself, for God to be true to his own character, for God to be... Wonderful words of Abraham. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? In the end, not even ten righteous people could be found in Sodom. So Sodom was destroyed. But one righteous man and members of his family did find rescue, did find find deliverance, as we have seen. But that intercession, that praying by Abraham, surely points like an arrow straight forward to another who intercedes yet more powerfully and yet more wonderfully for flawed people, saints and saints-to-be. One who is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus, and this intercession is not Jesus the Son pleading with wringing hands a reluctant God. This is Jesus the Son and the Father agreeing together to be faithful, to be loving, to be kind and to be merciful, just for the asking. The only great sin is the sin of pride, saying, I don't need that. The only great virtue is humility that says, I want and I need that. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection and ascension and continuing intercession, will do all the rest. It's an opportunity, a special opportunity just for, uh, at the moment for us to join our prayers with those of the heavenly Lord Jesus around Holiday Club. So let's consider our own work of intercession, joining hands with Jesus' work of intercession in heaven as we consider uh, Holiday Club. Now, uh, Carol, I think, won't mind me mentioning this, but um, there's an opportunity uh, for each of us, each day of the week, through Monday through, through, through Friday, for us to say, yes, I'll make a special day of prayer. Not necessarily praying all day, <laughs> probably not praying all day, but whatever I'm doing and wherever I am, I'll make prayer for Holiday Club a special thing.
And also, Nettie Pinching uh, will be holding open house 11 o'clock each morning of Holiday Club Week for anybody to, uh, to, to join her at 65 Meadow Rise Road um, for, again, a time of prayer for Holiday Club. Let's make that a priority. And let's take heart that it was prayer reaching to heaven that rescued Lot and his family. It is prayer joining hands with the prayer of Jesus which will, which will reach souls young and old and rescue them for Christ and his kingdom today. God be blessed. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the breadth of truth that there is in the word that your spirit has inspired. We recognize, our Father God, that there is a goodness and a severity to your truth. May we be warned by the severity in order to flee to the one in whom we can all take refuge. And having taken refuge, may we day by day draw on those heavenly resources of ongoing intercession at, your, at the throne of God for us to grow and change and work for your glorious kingdom. Amen. <laughs>